This is Slashers, your new favorite podcast about your new favorite horror media. My name is Jake, and with me, as always, are my esteemed colleagues, co-hosts, and cohorts, Doug and Adrian. Gang, say hello to the mutant goons from beyond. Hey, all you mutant goons, we're going to have a whale of a time. Whale, whale, whale. Now, Adrian, say hello. Hey, guys. Happy Pride Week for, and I do not have a whale pun, unfortunately. Can't think of my toes. Do you have any aquatic mammalian puns? I'll give you some of my blubber. (laughs) That, That needs to be a bumper sticker, blubber lover. I think there is. I've seen them in Florida all the time. When I went down to Key West, yeah, Blubber Lover, and it's all it's usually like a, a big lady in like a bikini, kind of like the one from, uh, you ever watch, what's that movie? Hi, I'm, I'm T-Rex. Is this the same with Fuck? Oh, uh, the Orgasmo. Orgasmo, yeah, I couldn't think of the name. It's like, hi, fellas. I'm, I'm ready to thick. <laughs> Stunt cock. Yeah, that, that lady's been on postcards. The random thing, but that lady that was the actress in that movie, she's on postcards for Florida where it's always like sun's out, buns out, and she's laying down. Oh, yeah. And they have like the whale where it's like the blowhole is her asshole shooting up into the sky, right? Yeah, it's very yeah. boomer jokes, isn't it? It's like this your grandpa would give you like, hey, hey, nerfer, this is funny. Doug, I love your boomer voice. It's always the same voice every time. (laughs) Well, you got to remember, I grew up in Ohio. (laughs) I moved back there for a year and a half, and I'm like, fuck this shit. And I came back. I think the correct phrasing is, you escaped Ohio. That state has more astronauts than anybody else because they literally cannot get the farthest fucking away from that state than to go out of outer space. Yeah, that's that exactly. Like in Ohio, uh, either you go out to space or you're in space because that's the biggest heroin addicts out there, too. Oh, neato. That's fun. Oh, needle. Dave Chappelle <laughs> lives there. It can't be that bad. He only lives in like one town. He doesn't live in like the entirety of Ohio. He lives like more down south, which is still just as boring. But, you know, he gets to travel. He's got money to travel. He went with the Foo Fighters during their quarantine or not quarantine, their vaccine concert thing. And he sang Creep. I just saw the headline and I'm like, that's surprising, but not surprising enough for me to actually click it. (laughs) I I didn't click it. (laughs) (laughs) I see it all the time. I'm like, oh, neat. And I move on. But I guess that's probably why I'm like half informed about stuff. I'm informed enough to be generally angry at the news, but not enough to like know why I'm mad because that would just consume me. And it would take up the precious time that I spend doing research on episodes such as this boom, brought it around to be on topic this week. We are talking about the director, James Whale. Now, I was thinking that the episode would go kind of like this. In terms of his horror content, it's really not very voluminous. So I figured we would kind of go through his life and then end with those movies and just kind of talk about how each of those movies affected us, which ones we like, and so forth. Sound like a party? Yeah. Yeah. All right. He's born in 1889, which blows my butt fucking mind because that is like a bajillion years ago. And this guy worked in talkie films like this isn't he's not quite old enough to be Alexander the Great, but he's like in my mind, he's closer to Alexander the Great than he is to like J.J. Abrams in terms of like where I categorize history. So that's neat. He goes to school. He's a student. He likes school and studentry. But then his parents like fuck that. That's expensive. We need to put you to work. So he becomes a cobbler. He does some graphic design. And then this little shindig starts called World War One, 
which started in 1915. He, knowing he was going to be enlisted, enlisted himself and goes off to combat. Any remarks? Oh, how old was he again? A baby. So he was super young. From 89 to 15. So actually, he's not that young, but he's young enough to where it's like, this is concerning. You're a child. You clearly don't know the socioeconomic ramifications of the battle that you're fighting for. Hmm, of course not. Fucking Franz Ferdinand. No, you're just going in there for fun. You think it's like, oh, come on, join World War One. You'll be like the Lone Ranger. Look at this. You know what I mean? Like, so I don't know. That's a lot of trauma for a kid. Oh, for sure. So to take all that in, you know. Well, you you failed to mention what happens while he's he's in there. I haven't gotten there yet. I I didn't just stop. My report didn't just stop, Adrian. Oh, thank you. Okay, sorry. If you don't mind, he goes to war. And I had a joke lined up in my head because it came to mind when Doug was talking. And I was going to be like, the reason that we can't have a draft now is because we have laser tag. And if this guy had laser tag, he wouldn't have enrolled himself because blah, blah. But he goes off to war to fight the good fight. Some allegations he had a tawdry little romance in the foxhole, which is kind of cool. But he ultimately ends up being a prisoner of war in Flanders, Belgium. Hi, diddly ho there. Neighborino. I'm missing. I'm going to wait till you laugh. (laughs) (laughs) You know, at least in Belgium, you may be prisoner of war there, but you get Belgium cookies. They got good beer. Yeah. Oh, there's something. But it was a Peel war camp, but he was he was doing like theater and stuff in there. So it's kind of like, oh, we're going to give you some recreational activities to do while you're locked away and, and may die any minute. But here, enjoy this little piece of stage play. You know, aside from the walls being made out of waffles, I think Belgian prison sounds pretty great. Because it's very European. Like, you see those places where they're like, oh, we're, we're just making you not kill us is basically what this prisoner of war camp starts out like. Because he's allowed to act, write, design, do costumes and all sorts. Like, it's amazing the resources he had available. Meanwhile, guys in, like, Korean prison camps are, like, making sure they don't get accidentally stabbed with shit-covered sticks. Well, yeah, maybe it was the time. it was the most civilized time if you're a history buff you could go back only so far but you don't have video footage of it so you really don't know what the you know some people could be really sadistic there um but belgium at least you'll be at the rabid granny's uh castle locked up right so oh yeah that's legitimate little throwback Maybe like they found a manuscript that was penned by James Whale in his own feces and hidden into a wall. And then that's how the script for the quote unquote script for Rabbit Grannies came to be. Yeah, see, there you go. So James Whale, creator of Rabbit Rabbit Tia's. I'm going to actually add that to the Wikipedia <laughs> right now, if you don't mind. Tekka, tekka, tekka. Now it's fact because you can cite Wikipedia on Wikipedia. He gets out of war. And apparently I saw some interesting shit that he was like a really good poker player and that basically people paid with like IOUs and gambled and he leveraged that into money to like support himself when he got out. And people tried to blow up the fact that he was a cartoonist for the London Bystander. I only saw that he sold two comics, which is still cool, but so he's kind of a little rudderless using his experience in the prisoner of war camp. And he ends up going into the theater and his first big thing is journey's end, which actually has Lawrence Olivier in it, which is kind of badass. He uses that. It's a very successful play. It ran for years 
And at this point, talkies are becoming a thing. So what I kind of delved probably too far into the recruitment of theater actors for screen, because now we have to deal with the voice and dynamism and dialogue, which you never really had to do. It would just be, you know, like a Kung Fu movie, except instead of overdub, it would be a little placard at the end that says, Avast ye scurvy dogs, etc. And then it would go back to the action. So you didn't have to match anything or any of that. So is it surprising to you to think that this thespian gets recruited to Hollyweird? I'm not surprised at all. It just seems like the next logical step. I feel like it was a lot easier too back then if you moved, if you were, if you had some kind of background. This just is me speculating, probably from watching too much Mad Men. But when you moved to California, like you probably had a better chance back then at, at becoming something versus now where it's like everyone does that, right? So it's like, oh, you have to move to LA or New York City to become something. And you're like one of like thousands of people doing the same shit and maybe you'll get discovered. Yeah, I mean, look at the Stooges. They used to do that all the time. They go into a studio. They're like, they're like, eh, they do something. They and the CEO is like, oh, you guys, come with me. You got the job. Or they just run and say, I need a, I need a job. It's like, well, ah, you can get a job here. Get to work. Yeah, probably still had a hobnob with the higher ups there, just to kind of make an impression to get into the gates. But you know, who, who's to not say like you can just kind of stand there with your suitcase and say, hey, look at and like perform and just try to get your way in there. You know, it's. But now everyone's got YouTube and, and TikTok, so. Yeah, maybe less competition, I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Less competition, but also a little bit less access. I mean, in terms of reading for people and things like that, that's obviously more difficult. Auditioning, that process is different. And also to break in is a little bit more difficult because at that time it was very popular to sign people to contracts. For instance, when he ends up in Lemley's Universal, that's like a five-year contract. He first starts off in Paramount, which was a, I mean, a long-term contract. And so one of the calculated maneuvers that those contracts allow you to do is not utilize people as well, shelve them, bring their market value down because they're not actively creating, and then use that to renegotiate at a lower rate. Or if they do depart from you, they're departing at the lowest, not the highest, if that makes sense. A lot of people would do something great, gangbusters, like when he adapts Journey's End into a film, boom, and he gets signed there, which is his best leveraging point, right? And then Paramount basically just lets him sit out and they don't use him. And then he goes to work for Howard Hughes, which I was like, what the fuck? The Tony Stark guy. And then that kind of peters out. And then in 1931, he signs a five-year deal with Universal. Five years of which he only really created for, a, well, I guess it's only two years. Out, no, it's four years out of it. So he's, basically that whole last year is left to waste because scandal. Not anything to do with his homosexuality, just scandal because of politicking. Do you know his first film for Universal? Don't look at notes. Look at me, Adrian. Tell me what his <laughs> first movie was for Universal, because I didn't know. Douglas, don't you be looking at that phone. I'm not. Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to tell us? Yes, I am, because I had never heard okay. of it. It was Waterloo Bridge, which was another war-themed film. Journey's End was a war-themed film and play. But a lot of war and he obviously had experienced it to a certain degree and you can imagine that becomes very cumbersome like my whole life is just me being you know either in war in jail or recreating it which you know obviously has varying degrees of success but waterloo bridge is apparently a big enough success to where universal's like do whatever you want we trust you and so he picks frankenstein now do you think this is based on mary shelley's frankenstein 
Well, I know the answer to that, but... But answer the question! <laughs> well, I don't know what you read, so I, I've i seen the film. It's not really based on her story. It's just the characters, and not even. Do you know what it is based on? Oh, uh, I actually know the, uh, the modern Prometheus or something. Wait a minute. So... Okay, I'm not looking at notes. So you're going to tell me. Exactly. Let me look at my notes that I prepared, because this is my presentation episode. Peggy Weebling's stage adaptation. So she had done her own thing. So by this point, which is just, it blows my fucking mind to think about this. But by this point, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was already public domain. This goddamn Mickey Mouse will never be in the public domain. They will lobby and do anything they can to cling to that intellectual property. Right. And then here you have within a one lifetime. You have this iconic work that is now up for grabs, but Universal had already bought the rights to the stage adaptation. So that's why it's done. We talked about this a little bit on the old Hammer Horror episode, which I would love to do a deep dive into Hammer Horror. It's just they're never streaming really anywhere and you kind of have to like pick and choose. You can never just get one box set. The day they do a Hammer Horror like complete Blu-ray box set is the day I lose my mind and never listen to any other media. But when they go to do that version of Frankenstein, they can't do anything that even resembles Universal's. So they can't do a Weebling adaptation. They can't have a flathead. All of it has to be different. So that is much more, you know, at least played on Shelley's work because it has to be separate and distinct because otherwise they get the ass sued. So we land on Frankenstein. Now, like I said, we'll kind of talk about the movies at the end and how they mean to us and the production of them and blah, blah. But that's a huge success. I mean, you're talking like, I think I saw the numbers like box office, like $12 million, which obviously box office is different. But when you just for inflation, this is like Avengers Endgame kind of perspective, right? And they're like, we have to do a sequel. And he's like, don't make me do a sequel. I don't, I don't want to do a sequel. How do I do a sequel to this? And so that's where they kind of entice him using hearkening back to the book, the original book, The Monster Wants a Mate. So Bride of Frankenstein is created. Any comments or concerns at this point? Am I blistering you with my pace? Do you want me to slow down? Do you want to chime in? Do you want to mystery science theater me and talk over me? What do you guys want? Give him, give me some. Okay. Well, I, I teach Frankenstein every year. So Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And we always go over the different various adaptations, especially with Wales particular version, right? Because so this is the first one where we actually, we, we see visually what's happening with the monster he goes up into this guy, he does this and that. In the book, obviously, if you've read the book, none of these things really happen. It's implied that he uses electricity, but it, do we really, did she describe him going up on the table and going up in the sky and getting struck by lightning? No. It's like an ectoplasmic kind of like goo, right? Or like, what is it? Like a placential goo that he's in, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, in, it's not even really that explained that well. And I think I like that she did that because we have all of these different interpretations of how the monster comes to life out of all these various movies, not just this one, but for example, Kenneth Branagh's, which is a hot fucking mess, but I still like that one. Yeah. Bobby De Niro. Yeah. Anyone? (laughs) That one had a fucking video game. Why? Oh my God. (laughs) Well, it was the time. Anyway, I just going to blame everything on the time from now on. So as far as this goes, I feel like, this one is important to 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 know because while they do sort of take some of the tropes of the story, it does twist a lot of things, but it still has that very heartbreaking moment where you feel for the monster, in my opinion. And so 
I think that's really important because I always feel badly for the monster. I always feel that it's not his fault. I feel that he was brought to life and he wasn't taught how to be. And he was just kind of forgotten and just expected to, to know how to be a human being. And, and, you know, as a result, all these terrible things happen, but imagine if we had just like taken him under our wing and we were sweet to him and like taught him how to eat, gave him a bedroom and And cigars. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. cigars, a glass of wine. I don't know, (laughs) but that's all I have to say. That's entirely right. Like, so I guess we'll kind of jump into it now. I guess there is no better time. So I'm changing the format of this episode on the fly. We're going to talk about the movies now. Frankenstein is my favorite universal monsters film. I've talked about it on this show that I found Universal Monsters films because I was a big fan of Phantom of the Opera, and I found a little book in my local library, and it had the Lon Chaney black and white, and I went to the other library, and I got the copy, and then I got every single Universal Monsters film, and I've seen them, and I always keep a flash drive plugged into my TV at all times. It has all of the movies, so researching for this was easy. I literally went click, click, click. Okay, I'm watching Bride of Frankenstein again. Click, click, click. I'm watching Invisible Man again, and... Frankenstein has always been my favorite as a fat kid who was teased, who was very disregarded by his parents, kind of as a latchkey kid, you know, and through no fault of their own. They were like working and stuff. But that sense of like isolation and I never like talked about my feelings to my parents. It was so easy to speak. Oh, that's my guy. Like nobody's taking the chance to listen to him. Nobody's giving him the benefit of the doubt. Instantaneously, he's made to be reviled, loathed disregarded and it was so accessible to me even as an elementary school student did any of you have that kind of similar entertainment with it uh well i did and in fact actually bride of frankenstein is my favorite one next it would be the invisible man i I like that and he's the most evil one of all of them yeah but yeah no it's fun because i saw these at a younger age i remember uh, my grandma had like the vhs collection of them and but no bride bride of frankenstein was the one that i actually cried on in fact, I still do when I, when I watched it last Halloween when he's picked up by the blind guy. Yeah. It's kind of like, man, you know, these movies still have feeling. And, and everyone's like, you know, the younger generation, that would be bored because it's like, hey, which is four by three for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, Gen Zers. But yeah, when, when I talk about Frankenstein, they're like, Frankenstein? You mean the movie? Wait, wait. Uh, no, it was um, Universal was trying to do it. Like the, the, I mentioned the mummy. That's what it was. Yeah. And the mummy's like, oh, yeah, the one with the one with the guy from Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise. I'm like, get, get oh, the fuck out. No, thank you. The Brendan Fraser would have been a better. <laughs> no, no. The, the, Brendan Fraser person. plays into James Whale. I have I have notes. Oh, OK. I'm excited about that. Well, and, and then the other thing, too, James Whale, for all you listeners out there, uh, you like his fashion is actually the one that if you watch a lot of like Looney Tunes and stuff like that, the director where it's like, so sit down and let me get uh, you know what i mean so it's like oh so you, you like the, with the high the the boots and stuff like that and then the the velvet uh, coat so yeah it, you know his image still kind of lives on to this day i still see that in you know cartoons and stuff yeah well, with wearing like an ascot and everything you're like who the fuck yeah. was and you like if you watch like movies like the artist or some of those ones that were set around this time the, the fashion's always so interesting because it seems as though like everybody's always dressed to the tits and you're just like wow you all look so great and debonair and you know it's all the pictures we see of that but that's also you're taking pictures of things that are noteworthy at that time they weren't just taking pictures or selfies and stuff or walking down the street so i'm always curious like what just like the street looked like were they all wearing three-piece suits all the time in california that seems like i would melt 
Oh yeah, I didn't melt too. I mean, I saw I was up in uh, Ukaipa the other day, and it's like uh, they have pictures like back in the old days with Albert Einstein, and uh, like people just dressed in like all leather, like the cowboys and stuff. I'm like, how the fuck did you wear that shit? I, I see people walking around here, and, and you know they're walking around in long black hoodies and sweatpants on like a hundred and two degree day. What the fuck? And going back to you know. I guess, you know, I want to highlight this because we are talking about Pride Month. Colin Clive, who ends up playing Henry Frankenstein, which is the most like Americanization of a European character ever. It's old Hank Franken, Hanky Frankie. Um, <laughs> he was uh, bisexual by all accounts. You know, there was never a declarative statement, but there were uh, lots of estrangement with the wife that he had, Jean de Casalis, Casalis, where they had parted ways. And so, a lot of people have added to James Whale's mythos about this homosexual undertone in specifically Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, because Bride of Frankenstein is where you bridge the gap with Hanky Frankie and his Dr. Septimus Pretorius, and he was an openly gay actor. And so the whole idea being very after the fact oh, two men are creating life and in doing so are creating an abomination. And there's lots of rhetoric regarding like the, the bride's, you know, rejection of them because she's, you know, the other and everything. Uh, I don't know that I'm qualified to talk about it, but what do you guys think? Do you think that this narrative that have kind of been thrust upon this movie of like this, you know, men subverting the natural order of things is its intention, or is it the fact that you have people bringing people back from the dead? Well, bringing people back from the dead is like the forefront here, but you know what I'm going to say? You know what I'm going to say, Jake? Oh, let's turn on that audio commentary on the Criterion Collection that? Blu-rays. <laughs> but no, that, that, yeah, it's, it's, it's a deep, it's a deep, deep movie, and you could look at, you could peel it back like onion layers, and yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure it's there. You know, you can pretty much dissect any movie um, he directed, really. Well, I was reading a couple of things and I was trying not to do too much because I didn't, <clears throat> I didn't want to, this was, this wasn't my episode. So I was like, okay. No, your fucking place. Yeah, exactly. So I know my place. I was reading other people's comments about him and they were saying that it, it's easy to see that sort of commentary with it because now if we look at it through our lens in this day and age, we can see those things. They claim that Whale did not intend for that. Yeah. So I don't really know. I can see that the fact that the two men are creating the monster, it's the other, I get it, and uh, quote, an abomination. However, I really think that the themes of man playing God is still most prevalent, whether you're gay, straight, whatever. Yeah. This is the biggest theme, the takeaway is that, you know, men try to play God and what do they do? They end up fucking up. Well, and that's one thing that I really am interested in by the bride. Because they do arguably create life insofar as they create her brain. It's different than just taking a plucking the brain out of a corpse and plugging it in, right? So there is mm -hmm. kind of that. But what's interesting is I take it a lot. I think this works so well on like neckbeard culture or like this incel attitude. I think that speaks to me right now. And I guess that's just the 2021 perspective. Because you have these guys, Pretorius even makes some comments about women throughout. He creates those weird little people. I, people like forget that scene exists, but he already made life just like tiny action figure sized people that are in like these weird cylindrical pieces of glass. And he makes the king and the queen and the queen rejects him. Right. And so he just assumes that the right thing to do is just he'll just keep doing it. And that like 
by way of being created, there is no free will. And the speaking for a woman and having that kind of expectation is so gross modernly. And like, especially when you get to the end where Frankenstein is basically like, oh, you don't want to love me? Well, fuck you. I choose that you die. She doesn't choose to die. Pretorius doesn't choose to die. Dissect it. Do you see small dick energy smeared all over this film? Aid, what do you think? As a woman, do you feel like, am I adding that just because I'm trying to like, you know, push my glasses up my nose and have this like smarmy hot take? Or is it, is there some meat there? The fact that like, she doesn't have any say, she has no free agency. And the moment she even deviates, they don't even try to woo her. It's just like, you know what? You're going to die. You didn't immediately suck my severed cock that was stitched on. You die. Well, because she brings no value to them any other way, right? So what's the point? The whole point of it is to be able to control, right? Especially the fact that she's a woman. We cannot do this. So what good is she to us now? But she's really that set piece that calls it all together. You know, it's very interesting to me when you see, oh, we don't, shit, we didn't even get into, oh my God, the same actress plays Mary Shelley at the beginning of the movie, which again goes to the subterfuge of women because that whole scene is basically just like, oh, you have a vagina and you wrote this fucking terrifying book. That's so weird. Oh, you have a vagina and you're scared of lightning, but you wrote this fucking disgusting, awful, evil book, says Lord Byron. Fuck off, Lord Byron. Well, Lord Byron was also fucking his sister back in the day, so he doesn't really have much of a an opinion in my my personal opinion. So obviously, this is just fiction. <laughs> so, but I mean, think about this. That, that book is it's two hundred years old now. At the time this film comes out, it's like one hundred and thirty years old, or what have you. And you have this fucking like, like the whole context of it. It's very revolutionary, I think, when you look at it through the right lens of Mary Shelley lost a sense of agency. You know, there was the whole publishing the book under a pseudonym so that she could get it done. There's the, you know, her using her husband's name. There's a whole argument there. And within a generation from there, you have what I think the parallel there, I think, is very, very intentional. You look at at the scenes of all the people, they could have gotten anybody to play the bride. They chose her to play the bride, the same actress that you have that story parallel, which I think is really fascinating. Um, And also, uh, Elsa Lanchester is gorgeous, like like hauntingly gorgeous in this film. And I really love just the entire character design. And like you were saying, she's only in it for like five minutes. You have films like Frankenhooker and Bride of Reanimator, where they they just spin off of this character who's only had like five minutes of stage time, which shows like how truly iconic she is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like Mm -hmm. when it comes to my kids, like my kids are already going to know Darth Vader is the daddy, right? Because that's just part of the zeitgeist now. We reference it everywhere. And the Universal Monsters films have that same impact. You see the same, let's say, you know, it's alive. Also, going back to that scene, like you're talking about this incredibly iconic scene that in the book doesn't even fucking exist. You know, so you have these like great swaths and these moments where it's become like a very foundational element of our understanding of film, of culture, and it's horror based, which is beautiful. Because like if I ask the common schmuck, like, hey, what happens in horse feathers? They're like, what the fuck is horse feathers? But if I ask him like, hey, 
you know, tell me about Frankenstein. Even if they've never seen it, they've seen enough about it to go directly to this film and tell me about it or to Bride for that matter. Well, this one here, it's well, you got to think, too, like, look at James Will. Like he we did a lot of the set design, too. You know, she's only in the movie. How long is Bride of Frankenstein? She's probably in the movie less than five minutes. And look how iconic it is. Like you see everyone with Bride of Frankenstein tattoos, you know, biker tattoos. You see her everywhere. And she's in the movie less than less than five minutes. Well, yeah, it's a big part of our pop culture, especially. And imagine going to the movies and seeing this for the first time. Like people didn't see things like this, right? Yep. So imagine seeing that for the first time on the screen and these elaborate sets, especially people who probably may otherwise didn't have access to see theater or anything like that, now being able to go and watch this film. And so I agree with Doug that, yeah, this is like just in our psyche. Yep. It's it's what we know. And, and, you know, and this is another thing I get annoyed too, is because when you see that image of, of the monster with this flat top and, you know, whatever, the bolts, you automatically assume that he is Frankenstein. When, as a teacher, I get very offended. No, that is not Frankenstein. That is his monster. Quote, his monster he created. And we call him the monster, but is he really a monster? He does horrific things eventually. But even in, in Wales' first one, he didn't mean to kill the little girl. He just tossed her in the lake. Like the flowers, yeah. He thought he was doing something beautiful. Yeah. And then, you know, they hunt him down and I'm, I'm just like, to me, that's just so heartbreaking because I, like we know as the audience that he did not do this. To me, the doctor, Igor, those are the frightening things about that film, not the monster. Truly. And going even further than that, like when you have those that the beautiful delicacy and this kind of blundering character who's staggering through, you see movies like fucking Edward Scissorhands. If you don't see Edward Scissorhands and immediately think of Frankenstein, let me lend you a copy of Frankenstein because that very obtuse character who destroys everything he touches completely inadvertently. We see these parallels over and over again. Let me ask you, do you think that a lot of the reason why it's so incorporated in our cultural consciousness is because at the time there was no VHS? There was like home theater didn't exist back then. So you would have people refer to these things to keep them fresh and to you know raise the awareness because you couldn't just pop over to the five and dime and pick up a copy. Yeah, no, I agree. Obviously, they had to they had to keep it alive somehow, and I'm sure they with those kinds of movies. And and I want to say because I've read this before, they were constantly playing, right? They didn't just have their season and be done, or you know, yeah. they would bring it back multiple times because how else would anyone? I wouldn't characterize it as constantly playing, but they were circulating, I'll say. Circulating. Okay. Because they, like, they would make the rounds, like you're saying, and different areas would have it at different times. And so, you know, but I'll, that's why, I mean, think about Bride of Frankenstein. It's only 75 minutes, but they replay the high points of the entire first film. Reason being, a lot of people probably saw Bride who'd never gotten a chance to see Frankenstein and were seeing it to supplement the fact that they didn't have access to Frankenstein. Which is so weird when you think about the way modern media is where, like, if, if I watch an episode of Loki, I'm like, what the fuck is this gobbledygook that you're wasting my time with? Unless I've seen 25 other films and two other shows, an Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., an Agent Carter, and all uh, the Inhuman show that was canceled after five episodes. Then I have the proper context to see this. But if I don't have all that, I can't. And so that's one of the things I think is so interesting about this. Or even like the way the Rocky movies go, where it's like it, it starts with the ending. I think it's such a useful tool, and I wish that more things did that. How about that? Huh. Well, sometimes that can drag. I mean, look at Friday the 13th Part 2, yeah. for example. That drags on. I mean, 
You don't have to show. Just show her whacking off the old lady's head and let's move on, right? Yeah, show her whacking off. Well, you got to fill up time, yeah. Yeah, it's flicking the bean. Ah! So there's my pun for today, people. Zing. Thank you. Now, uh, last remarks, I guess, on Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein before we move on, which we could go full length. If you would like to see Universal Monsters content, let us know. Slasherspot at gmail.com. Become a Patreon patron. You can elect episodes. You can buy an episode. You can do the one minute reviews. There's tons of ways to get us to talk about these more if we have triggered you because obviously I have a, I could do like four different dissertations. I could probably do an entire month of just Frankenstein just through different lenses. But the ending of oh good. No, I was going to say, and if you guys build up enough steam to Universal, hopefully they see the metadata and they're like, oh, people want uh, more Universal Monster movies and we'll finally get that Igor movie. Like, everyone wants Igor. Like, what's his backstory? He's like, oh, yes, I just wanted to get a job and and maybe I'll get a humpback and get laid if I make life. Oh, yes. You know, I, I want an Igor movie. There's never been a real Igor movie. They made one with James McAvoy and... Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe. I was going to call him Harry Potter. I'm like, why can't I think of it? It's called Victor Frankenstein. Yeah. Called Victor. Yeah. Oh, also. But it's about him. That brings me back to you, Adrian. You're like, that fact that they call him Frankenstein. Now, if he's a human entity created by Frankenstein, would not the lineage thereof go so that the monster would be called Monster Frankenstein? So Frankenstein, I feel like I will advocate. I don't mind when people call him Frankenstein. Oh, because you're saying, well, theoretically, yes, he is his son. Theoretically. Okay, fine. But he did just cast him off to the wind. So. You don't get to take someone's name, God damn it. No, Frankenstein is his actual name because I do have this movie called Frank Frankie and his pals. So, yeah, so see, Frankie, Frankenstein's his real name. So there you go. Frankie Frankenstein. If you want a $2 version of uh, uh, Monster Here Squad, this is it. Frankie, Frankie and his now, pals. going to the end of Bride of Frankenstein, studio meddling abounds already at this point of Wales career. The original ending is that Elizabeth goes off and she's fine and she's left to be a widow. But Hanky Panky, the bride, Pretorius and the monster all die so much so you can see Victor or not Victor Henry Frankenstein in the room when it blows up. If you look at the left wall, he blows. He's in the room, even though in reshoots, he had just left with Elizabeth. And no, you go. We belong dead. Which also, if you don't mind, a Proud Boy lead singers, the new misfits with Michael Graves. They had dust to dust. We belong dead is a, a thing in it. But I don't listen to them anymore because he is an anus. Let's move on. Do you like the idea of him dying with his creations and having his agency removed? By the monster, or do you like the ending where it's cute and then he just gets to go off and be scot free? Like that was a weird time in my life. Yeah, which one were you going to say the more depressing? Yeah, one? Yeah, he should be dead. Why would it was that? Is that more depressing or going off with his wife more depressing? I'm not sure. Which Depends on mean. perspective, right? If you're the father of the little girl who died, it's depressing that he gets to just go off and waddle into the world, you know, unabashed. But if he dies, that that's the happy ending globally. If you're Robert Smith of The Cure, like, oh, I just want to get in a car accident with you. It's not Friday, I'm in love. It's whatever day they die on, I'm in sadness. Oh, no, he should he should die with his creation. He made them, they weren't perfect. And if he feels that they need to be destroyed, then he should be destroyed with them. What do you think, Doug? Oh, no, I think so, too. I definitely go with the darker, the edge, the edge lord way. He made his creations out of his psyche, like a lot of them just out of his selfishness, because, 
you know, it's it's kind of like, yeah, when you die like that, you got to go too. You, you made the creation, you know, you're not God. And it's a lot of hubris and vanity, right? Because the idea of ploying God and doing what you shouldn't do, I think is explored really well, which we're about to talk about in The Invisible Man, which is probably my second favorite Universal monster film. And I think it's just very, very provocative. But another frustrating element of that film is Griffin gets an excuse because he's made crazy by the serum or whatever. He isn't already crazy. Just like in Frankenstein, Hank is driven crazy by this scenario and they kind of touch on the vanity and the idea of what like man playing God and delving where they should not don't go quite far enough. But we also have had nearly a hundred years to sit back and kind of like rewrite these things in our minds. So I too agree. I think that he should die at the end. I think it's a much more interesting ending. You know, here you have this creature that did not choose to be born and you have Frankenstein who does not choose to die and they are a victim. They're so entwined that it's almost as if, you know, while he took all of these parts of other bodies, Frankenstein gives a piece of himself to this creature. And I think him dying alongside it has a beautiful symmetry. And that's all I have to say. Moving on. Next, from Bride of Frankenstein, you know, we have, I actually rewatched it, you know, you have the, I completely didn't touch on the Christ parable and everything, so please, if you want more, let us know again. Next, he does the road back. No, that's not right. What? Who fucked up my notes? What asshole fucked up my notes? Uh-huh. So he goes. <laughs> it wasn't me. What's well, not you? And say, paperclip guy from Windows 95, where the fuck are you? No, no, no. <laughs> because we we informally went to Bride of Frankenstein, which is 35, because we on the fly changed the structure of the show, because why the fuck not? So now we'll go back to 1933 and talk about The Invisible Man, which actually got the seal of approval from H.G. Wells himself. Isn't that dandy? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, it, it's good. And the thing is, what's scary is like he's the biggest asshole of all the universal monsters. He's the real monster. Truly. I mean, he is malicious. He purposefully kills others. You know, he, there's no confusion. Everything he does has a sense of deliberateness. You can excuse the feral nature of the Wolfman because he's possessed. You can excuse Dracula because that's how he lives. That is the nature of those things. It's not in quote unquote human nature to just murder people because you want to. Also, he's just so fucking mean when he's in his hotel room and he's like, I hate you all. And then he like has the man slave. That's just intense. Yeah, he derails a train full of people for the lols. I mean, you know, <laughs> literally he does. He just he's like, ah. like, what the fuck do you do that yeah, for, right. asshole? <laughs> But I, when I think of this movie, I talked to you guys about this before we were recording. I would liken this to like a movie with The Rock. It was a huge spectacle film like Hobbs and Shaw. I haven't seen those movies, but I assume they're both assholes based on the trailer. So here is your your asshole, your capricious asshole and some truly amazing special effects that have just this ingenuity. What's your favorite effect from The Invisible Man? Well, my favorite, in fact, one of my favorite scenes is the scene where he's like kicking the guards in the back. He's like, oh, no, I got you. Yeah. The scene with the pants. So it's that, that that's my favorite. And besides the train derailment and stuff. But yeah, yeah, that's that's my favorite effect is the, the pants getting the cops getting their asses kicked. <laughs> hey. I, don't, I don't know if I have a lot of favorite, but I've, I haven't seen this movie probably in I think the last time I saw it. I was. They played it for us in middle school for something. I can't remember why. <laughs> but I always liked it, obviously, 
to Hollow Man because Hollow Man's based on it. So that's the one Paul Verhoeven flop I'm not a fan of all that much. The titty <laughs> twisting is very, very irreconcilable. Oh, I know, so bad. But I love Kevin Bacon. So what can you do? But as far as there are a lot of people who reference this film a lot, especially when you're talking about different horror and the Universal monsters, because if you think about it. Again, he's not a monster. And is he like the first slasher? Am I allowed to say that now? I don't recall him ever using a Mm -hmm. knife, but I I did watch this pretty recently. But I mean, he does strangulate people and threaten them. He's murdering. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, huh. Well, he's definitely a slasher in the remake. The remake's really good. I like the remake that came out right before the pandemic. The quarantine one? Yeah, that one's badass. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, he's a slasher. He That guy's a jerk. Like, he's like Elon Musk on uh, acid. You know? <laughs> yeah, dude. It's like you'd want to you'd want to spend the whole like how many years was he like traumatizing that lady? Like, you know what I mean? It's just like what? Why the like, relationships too? like the stockings? Like you were hanging out with your mother yeah. again, weren't you? That's cheating. It's like, get the fuck away well, and that's from me. Very much like you see a little bit of it. Like he is not a redeemable character. Like his love interest, it doesn't make sense. They're together. And it's only because he previously ingratiated himself, you know, and that's why she's sticking through uh, through the modern time. But yeah, to, to Doug's point, that was something that was very inter- like that whole like that. That's like the anti neck beard movie. And yeah, in terms of endorsements, I guess that's probably my favorite reinterpretation of what you would characterize as a universal monster film mm-hmm. like certainly not the wolf man with anthony hopkins and benicio del toro <laughs> i mean or the mummy with tom cruise get the fuck out of here they were also bad i don't know why it's so hard for them to just remake something and do it well except for the with the exception of the invisible man the Invisible Man, I, I, from what I heard, that that movie did really good, so they're going to do like a whole lineup of doing it more along the lines of like how The Invisible Man was. And, and they should. Very low budget, small scale, because that's the problem with the bloated Tom Cruise mummy. The mummy is not a global threat. The mummy is Imhotep on the you know, verge of revenge and everything. It's very small scale. And that's one thing that makes that movie work so well. All these universal monster films. You're never worried Dracula is going to take over the world or he doesn't have like a swarm of bats like Dracula untold. It's just self-contained story. And I think that's one of the great things about how they overarch when they do connect is they can have that microcosm. But if you have like this goes to superhero shit. Why isn't Iron Man in Captain America 2? It's a global threat. Everybody fucking knows that. Hey, start shooting the bad guys. Hydra's everywhere. Start shooting them. You're a superhero. You have a grand scale. When you're so blown up and you're so bloated and you're, you have this meta consciousness and you're omnipotent, the fact that you don't do things becomes crippling. Whereas these creatures have a certain isolation inherent to their nature. So the little microcosm of each one being separate it makes sense why when I'm watching Frankenstein, I don't have to worry like, huh, I wonder what, how Dracula is going to retaliate upon this. No, because they're not involved until they so choose or Abbott and Costello have a hilarious romp that involves both of them. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Gen Z, they do like that one because I will play it on occasion. It's a great papers. The Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yep. Is it Frankenstein? Yeah. Okay. Hey, they got good taste in movies. So it's one of my... All time favorite films. The best. So that's my third favorite ending to a film of all time. Yeah. Rocky three life of Brian Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein with the uncredited Vincent Price cameo. 
So good. Sultry, seductive. My favorite effect, not that anybody fucking asked me or whatever, is him unwrapping himself. I remember seeing that as a kid and be like, how the fuck? You know, like so often I'd already seen more impressive effects, but that was one where I was like, how do you even, you don't have a computer? Like you don't have a Turing machine. You just fucking did what? So that blows my mind. It also, Invisible Man inspired me to go watch a lot of George Millier films, which, I mean, he, a lot of, he did like a thousand little short things, and a lot of it's basically screen testing, like, hey, let's see if this works. So the ingenuity of the Invisible Man and some of those effects, if you like that and get a kick out of it, George Millier, he's the guy who did A Trip to the Moon, which the music video for Tonight Tonight from Smashing Pumpkins is based on. He does some other shit. He does the uh, Old Dark House in 32 he does, you know, the Iron Man and the Iron Mask, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of really frustrating elements when it comes to his career because, like, he would work on things and then not work on. Th- it all comes down to the road back, which it's a very heavy concept. But this is like the first time where basically somebody kind of got canceled. So the road back is 1937, and uh, it's a sequel to All's Quiet on the Western Front. And it gets banned in certain places. It gets censored so much more than Frankenstein or any of his other like horror works. You know, the idea that you were reanimating corpses was like reviled and viewed as repulsive. But the idea that you would show war in any kind of context, but hey, let's rally the troops and buy war bonds, not going through. And so they ended his contract prematurely. And in 1941, he basically retires. He does contributes to different things throughout and so his name appears but like in terms of true creative work it really stops there and he's the rest of his life is kind of a downer which is why i originally wanted to talk about the movies at the end because you know it's sad oh yeah because if you want to talk about the end of his life and yeah it's uh, but it's kind of but he was in pain too i was reading into it you know what i mean like it's i guess that's there's a positive note on that but you know it's i don't know when you're when you're depressed and everything like that but yeah he he had a lot of pain so he's like oh you know i'm not i think because they even said like when they reported it they said that he drowned he fell into his pool and drowned in the pool yeah yeah and the person who actually reveals the true circumstance of that was david lewis who was his partner for 22 years. And while they had separated, they still, they bought like a, a a hotel together after they separated. And when Lewis died years and years later, he he was also cremated and turned right next to James Whale, which is beautiful and, and somber and sad. Because I always, you know, when you think about the person who's left over, he died, Lewis died in 87, whereas Whale died all the way back in 57. So that's another 30 years of life. And it's it's almost like life half lived, like there wasn't another great passionate love. There wasn't another great adventure. Uh, but but David Lewis created a lot. He was a great film producer who did a lot in the industry. And he kind of helps rebut some of the allegations that Whale was blacklisted because of his homosexuality, because he was openly gay without making a declarative statement about being gay. If you knew who he was, you knew he was gay and that was it. And so it's this very interesting push and pull when you go and do a lot of research on him. He was not an advocate. He was just a gay man. And so a lot of it kind of gets lost where people, I think, add a meaning to something beyond. And it wasn't as though like he had done anything that was specific to his homosexuality, aside from like, you know, having a bunch of pool parties with naked dudes slinging dicks around 
which did happen. He didn't swim, but he had a pool just for that. Pretty ambitious. It's already yellow for you. I'm ready to jump in. Oh. There's a hotel in Key West just for that. So we almost stayed there by mistake. Anyway, the, the pool that he drowns himself in is the pool I'm talking about. So he had two strokes later in life. He had this weird like live in Frenchman who, you know, there was some animosity there and people believed there was issues and what have you. Again, people adding their own self-interest to the narrative. But ultimately, he kills himself because he's having these bouts of like spastic temper and everything, which are directly induced from the strokes. And so he commits suicide. The notes revealed. And that's basically a wrap, not to make a pun on The Invisible Man with James Whale. Have you heard of Gods and Monsters? Yes, yes. In fact, I've seen bits and pieces of it. Uh, my buddy Coker is like, oh, you should watch it. I'm like, yeah, I watched some clips on, on YouTube. But yeah, he's like, oh, that movie makes me cry because those monsters are like, a you know, an affirmation and a creation from him. Like those monsters were him. I guess what they were saying in the movie. Yeah. So Gods and Monsters is a really interesting film. It's adapted from a book, which I believe is The Father of Frankenstein, and it's a novel. It's not an actual thing. And what it does is it depicts a guy named Clayton Boone, who is like a yard man, who's a heteronormative yard man. And there's this interesting relationship that it falls between him and Whale, where Whale's kind of enticing him and ultimately tries to use Boone to kill himself. So ultimately, he does make a very overt pass at him and it tells him, like, I want you to kill me. Like, he's purposefully trying to piss this guy off enough to be killed. He still commits suicide. Boone ends up finding him, but then they throw him back into the pool because the maid brings up the fact of, like, do you want people asking about your relationship with this man? And it's very interesting because in the film, Brendan Fraser plays him and he's just some dude from the sticks in Missouri who's enticed by this lifestyle, the lavishness, the stories, the circumstance. And he's just some guy. And he even gets challenged by, you know, like the closest thing to a love interest that he has, who is like, you're just going to be mowing lawns forever. And so there's this direct you know, contrast between what Whale has and has been and Brendan Fraser. And it has this kind of cutesy schmaltzy ending where, you know, he shows Frankenstein to his son and he's like, what do you think, buddy? To show like he does get his shit together through this. I would recommend the film, but it kind of is like cruising in some ways. It deals with these ideas overtly and not overtly at the same time. Does that make sense? Because it's like mm-hmm. whale is gay the entire time and, and they, they, that's a huge element of it. But the way that it's addressed is kind of odd. And also, I'll say this. It's stylized at certain points, not the whole movie, because he has these weird fragmented flashbacks of his life that are very artistic, cool, but it's only sometimes. And so I feel like this is a great rough draft, but it could be done a little bit better. But Bill Condon is the guy who adapted it and directed it. And he did. He did stuff. He directed a lot of the the Twilight movies and stuff. So this was only the second or third thing he'd ever directed after the Candyman Farewell to Flesh, which is largely well received so that's neat i was anticipating that you guys would have seen that movie a little bit so any remarks or beliefs on uh, mr james whale who wins in a fight between frankenstein and uh invisible man oh invisible man will kick your ass any day yeah will smart him yeah yeah i think he would fight dirty kick him right in the balls but i guess you wanted to add a positive note at the end of it here so you know and, and not like wanted to end it on james whale's death just think of what he did like you think of frankenstein you think of green flathead you think of invisible man you think of the goggles and the bandages think of wolfman 
Well, I mean, there's a lot of different werewolves. You know, that's besides the point. But, I mean, seriously, so, you know, you died, but, you know, your work still lives on. Everyone recognizes it. I think that's a huge achievement. Yeah, and even his note is sad. Did you read his note? I'm looking at it right now. Do you want me to read it? It's like two paragraphs. Do you want to read it? You can You can read it. It's fine. Should I do a British accent? The second, no, I was looking at the second paragraph where he's... I want to hear your British accent. You do it in a British accent. I am no. not doing a British what accent. I can't. Just do a British accent. Come on, mate. God see, but see that it, you sound like like either like like I sound either Southern or like Australian. It doesn't really work. So Justo, I said lo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just do it. There's actually a lot of information that he like rejected his accent because it was a sign of his like impoverished upbringing. So then maybe he would not have had a very prominent accent back. By at that point, like more of a Fraser Crane voice. Okay, so do your do do Niles Crane. It's a little bit more dignified than Fraser. <laughs> I can't do that. Why do you guys have to put me on the spot like this? I don't know how to do things. Like do Niles, do Niles. Are we live? All right, hashtag all you uh, Twitchers out there. Hashtag do Niles, do Niles. Smash that like and subscribe button and give us a bunch of tokens. Come on, do it. Oh my god. Okay. Do, all right. Do, 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 do. I've had a wonderful life, but it's over and my nerves get worse and I'm afraid they will have taken me away. So please forgive me all those I love and may God forgive me too, but I cannot bear the agony and it is best for everyone this way. The future is just old age and illness and pain. That needs to be on our shirt. You you want to remind everybody that they're going to get shaken loose from this mortal coil. I was like, fuck, that's the thing that hurts. It's just like, it's inevitable. Well, yeah, that's why I didn't read that part because... I was trying to not be depressing. <laughs> what was that? Niles on Dizapan or <laughs> Yeah, that's my, my shitty Niles. Oh my god. She was on the luminol that he was on before we passed. Oh, uh, well, you know. Hey, but yeah, you should get that on a shirt. Like uh that, that's pretty metal, actually. All right. <laughs> Doug, I want you to do like do it. That's the hidden track for this week, fuckers. Oh yeah, that was that was fun. See, let's get a contract. Where's a where's Capitol Records? So I guess going back to Whale, obviously created a mythos for himself. He had a huge, lasting impact on the industry, but also on like queer creators like Bill Condon, who adapted and did Gods and Monsters. He was an openly gay man. And to embolden people, especially like when you think about what being a gay man or gay person or trans person or or any, I guess, left of center uh, individual could mean. I mean, look at uh, what is it, Rupert Everett. He came out as gay and his career dried up faster than my bladder on the sun i was gonna say your vasectomy just a couple days away ladies and gentlemen you can patreon patrons you can name my stitches on my balls new tier 50 cents oh so you got to give all your energy now jay because the next time you're gonna come it's like uh, yes so uh, this this uh, let's open up our pages i'm gonna be sitting <laughs> on my frozen peas being like uh but luckily next month is all dinosaur content. So I have quite a bit of leeway and I'll have reserves that have been built up for 65 million years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Smart move. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, dinosaurs can't reproduce and neither can I. Yeah. 
Yay! Well, actually, there, there's a there's like a sixty percent you know chance like oh it could reconnect the tissues. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah, it doesn't work right away. I have to wait three months and then I have to come in a cup and then they have to check the cup. And what's really weird is they're like oh yeah the sperm just kind of goes away but it doesn't come out your pee pee hole and I was like because <laughs> they make you take a class. Where does it go? Exactly. They make you take a cl- oh that's right you got to take a class. How is the class where everyone going like Ugh. anybody who's ever criticized our show for not being intellectual enough needs to undergo the Kaiser Permanente ball cutting off class because it was like the worst lamest. I learned more from, did you know the first vasectomy was performed on a dog? I learned that in my own independent research because that presentation sucked. Start with the juicy stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, how long was the class? Like an hour. And not a, not one mention of dog balls. What's juicier than dog balls? I don't know. But hey, if it's Kaiser Permanente. It's like, they're probably expensive. I'd probably just do a YouTube tutorial and have some, some uh, random person show me how to do my own with a pizza cutter. I think if they want people to abstain, they should just show that scene from Antichrist where uh, Willem Dafoe is getting jacked off. Blood splooge! And it's all blood. Mm, yeah. uh- <laughs> or Human Centipede 2, wax the carrot with sandpaper. The only paper. thing I learned from that presentation was that cutting off my balls may not be permanente yeah they grow back <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're like you just like doug said they're like it's like a lizard oh yeah oh that'll be fun oh what if my ball sack becomes like hydra and the balls that got cut off grow other jakes and then the vast deferens grow other balls oh my god please don't show us that <laughs> a lot of balls Cut off one, two more shall take its place. Suddenly I become the most <laughs> fertile person on the planet. Just being around me, my little sperm let shoot off into the mist of the air, go in through your nose, all the way down to your booty hole. Uh, the cum shower, that's what they call it in Vegas. Yeah. Oh my when, God. When I, you say that Jake is giving you the vapors, it has a whole other meaning when it's full of little sperm, evil sperm. Well, you never know. They might put you in the radiation. They're like, where do we put Jake at? Oh, oh we put him in the in the enlargement room. That room has toxic chemicals in there. It'll give him superpowers. I actually watched this last night, courtesy of some Canon B-movie TV, Soul Vengeance. That actually sounds just what you got. It's a 1970s black exploitation film, but this guy, he... Um, he, he goes to jail and then they use him for this science research and he has this... Like Luke Cage? Yeah, but he comes out and he has this penis that extends and he strangles all the people yes. that did him wrong. So, yeah, it's got like this rubber balloon penis that strangles people to death. So maybe that might happen to you after your vasectomy mishaps. Yeah, <laughs> I'm into it. What if my ball sack becomes like plastic, man, and I can like stretch it over my face and have like the Mission Impossible mask thing? And I'm like, well, missionary impossible. I've become so because my balls will hurt. Are you enjoying this aid? Oh, becomes. I get it. Yay. Uh, oh. <laughs> I'm spent. Yeah, I think we've, we're kind of circling the drain here, gang. I know. Well, I, I certainly wanted to leave us all on a higher note because the suicide is sad. But it's also you have to keep in mind, like he went out on his own terms, like however sad his ending is could have been a lot sadder. And maybe that's just somebody who's I'm fine with euthanasia. I think it's absolutely appropriate. You know, he was suffering. Also, like you think of the way like neurological health is now where people like a lot of the medications people take now for neurological health have existed like lithium, like batteries inside of your body Mm -hmm. so the brain is still so unknown when you think about that he was not getting state-of-the-art care there was nothing there was no grand horizon actually my favorite scene of gods and monsters is when he says like so you're saying this isn't something where i'm just going to get better like i'm just going to get worse to the doctor and the doctor's like not prepared to address that he's like uh that's what it was so 
you know, if you want to celebrate Whale, celebrate all of his works. And, and he did have a lot of works that weren't just horror. We obviously focused on those because we're a horror podcast. But, I mean, he did stuff like was it the old boat. And, yeah, so we're not the old boat. He did Showboat, musicals, yeah. too, didn't he? Exactly. Yeah. And so he did have other fun things that were a little bit more, you know, easy to, to sip on. But if you'd like us to do any more content, especially Universal Monsters, let us know. I would love to do a battle of Universal Monsters versus Hammer Horror because there that is oh, hotly contested in my own brain. Now, Doug, let's say I really liked you. Jake, probably not so much because he talked too much during this episode. And he's going to hate himself when he's editing this. But Doug, Doug, we like. How do we get more Doug in our life? Well, you can follow me at Doug Bizarro on Instagram. Um, right now, I've got a lot of stuff going on, so you get to see some cool pictures and stuff. Um, and then uh, on B-Movie TV, if you got a Roku, they're pretty cheap. So the cheapest thing on the market, cheap answers. But you can download B-Movie TV, and I'm on Friday Night Action at 8 p.m. I host an action film, and Jake's on there at 10 p.m. So, hey, you get a DP of, of, of content on that show. On Saturday nights, though. Yeah. On Saturday nights at 10. And then, A, let's say I have just too much money and I'm just like, fuck this money in my pocket. What do I do with it? Well, you can support us through our Patreon at patreon.com slash slasherspod. Again, we have new tiers ranging from $1 to $10. Or you could go to our Redbubble at slasherspod.redbubble.com. Jake's got a ton of new amazing designs like the live slash love one with a pretty little wine glass with the goon show face. It's my favorite. So... If you want that one or any of the others, they're all there for you. Please take a look. You might find something to wear, stick on your body. We're still looking at thongs, people. So just let us know. Yeah, you get the official Slasher's Pod dental floss thong. Oh, that sounds comfortable. You want worn panties? I'll sell you worn panties. I'll sell you the panties that I worn while my balls were seeping. I'll do it for you if that's what you're into, or I'll keep my seepage to myself on the other spectrum. After his vasectomy, so you get like a cotton ball pad full of blood. (laughs) You know what you can do with the cotton ball pad full of blood? You can do a Jurassic Park, which is going to be our theme for next month, right? And you can recreate Jake like the amber blood inside the mosquito that would have obviously (sighs) died out several million years ago. So we could clone Jake with the blood. From his balls. Of his balls. I love it. You don't even need the semen in it. You can just have the blood. Exactly. But if you want, you can get me pregnant by myself. (laughs) And then you'll be your own grandpa. Remember that song? I'm my own grandpa. I'm my own grandpa. Ah, See, we picked this up at the end, gang. So for Doug and Adrian, my name is Jake saying goodbye and good die. Cue the DJ ear horn sound effect. Wait, we do not have that set up? Well this is just plain amateurish. Now I look like a dildo. I might as well be the dildo who hosts this show for other dildos. Well, I guess I will intro this week's hidden track. The song is Phantom of the Boardwalk by Beach Creeper. The aforementioned dildo who hosts this show got into Universal's monster movies because of the Phantom of the Opera, so he likes it. I like it too, I probably like it more than him in fact because I am competitive. And he is a dildo. Support Beach Creeper at all the links in the episode description and enjoy Phantom of the Board.